What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, flamethrowers. Amira here with a very special episode of Burn It All Down. If you've listened to this week's episode 161, you would have heard my co-host and myself talking about the recent harmful anti-trans athlete rulings and athletes in the movement for Black Lives in the wake of the killing of George Floyd by the MPD. If you listened to that episode, you heard us highlight athletes speaking out, struggling through, and making sense out of the killings of Floyd and also Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade. You also would have heard us bringing us our usual burn pile, and we shouted out Badass Woman of the Week, who this week were all the Black female athletes speaking up. But you may have noticed that we did not include an interview. That is because in this special episode, we wanted to give space for the voices of Black women athletes. And not just one interview, not two or even three, but 11. This special issue features the voices of 10 black women and one black girl, from professional sports to college sports, from soccer to softball, basketball to ballet, martial arts. Their voices here have woven together as a powerful testimony. Some voices here are raging and angry. Some are just finding their voice. Some are questioning. Almost all of them are tired. We're exhausted, but they're still going. So we invite you to listen to this cacophony of powerful voices, this assembly of Black women sharing their stories, honoring their truth, and we ask you to join in with them, witness their words, and join them in the long fight for freedom. Black female athletes speaking out against racism and police brutality is nothing new. Back in 2016, after the police murders of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, WNBA players led the way by wearing Black Lives Matter shirts and holding media blackouts where they refused to talk about basketball and would only talk about police violence. When Colin Kaepernick started taking a knee during the national anthem a few weeks later, center Kelsey Bone was the first of multiple WNBA players who joined him in protest. Notably, Kelsey is also the only WNBA player to take a knee outside of the 2016 season. In 2018, she played for the Las Vegas Aces and took a knee during the national anthem before every single game. We've been lucky enough to have Kelsey on Burn It All Down twice, episodes 22 and episode 60. Today, we want to play you a clip from episode 22, which was recorded in 2017. Back then, I talked with Kelsey soon after Donald Trump made headlines calling Kaepernick and other NFL players taking a knee sons of bitches. She talks about the reasoning for her protest which began very soon after she was traded from the Connecticut Sun to the Phoenix Mercury mid-season. 
Today and every day, it's crucial that we listen to her why and that we hear what Black people have been saying over and over and over again. Um, well, it was a very, very interesting time for me because you walk into a team such as the Phoenix Mercury. Uh, you have all these great players. Um, you have this great tradition. Um, you know, this is an organi- one of the original organizations, one of, you know, the organization. There's all this greatness that you're surrounded by and then real life happened. And while you're trying to fit in into all this greatness, things that really mean something to you and things that really matter, you kind of have to speak up. I have a a younger brother who's 16. My brother is today, um, he's 6'6". And I remember the the shooting of Terrence Crutcher um, in Oklahoma. And I remember those cops sitting in the helicopter looking down and saying, oh, whoa, that's a big, bad dude. And I remember thinking, how, how do you know that? It, it, it's funny because I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm having, I'm back in that moment. And um, you talk about a big, bad dude and, and you talk about what does that look like? You know, my, my father is, six five my stepdad six three my brother six six i have two uncles that are six seven and six eight um i mean i'm i'm six four myself so so what what makes you big and bad and then i fast forward to this summer and i get a phone call from my mother that she's my brother's called her from the mall to come pick him up because he's been apprehended for shoplifting. Oh my God. Now, if you know my brother, that's how you respond. That's how you respond. I literally just landed back in Las Vegas. I just flown from Houston back to Las Vegas when I got this phone call and the the emotion that I felt in, in, in getting that phone call, what could I do? I was I was stuck. My brother's a, a junior in high school. He just turned 16. He he has a 3.8 GPA, varsity basketball player, um, number seven ranked kid in the city. He was racially profiled in Saks Fifth Avenue. Why did I kneel? Why, what was going through my head when I kneeled? I didn't care about who was going to be the president. I didn't care about who felt what. I cared about Donovan Kennedy Williams. I cared about the little boy that is my little brother. Because I felt that in my heart, that it could it, it is that easy for it to be my brother. And a year later, it was my brother. Now, luckily, we're, my mom is savvy enough, and my mom works for the school district, and she can go and get a lawyer and she can go and get my brother out of this situation and if I never had this conversation on your podcast no one would ever know that this happened to my brother because my mom is that good but everybody's mom is not yeah Khalif's brother Khalif brother's mom couldn't go just get him a lawyer she couldn't get her son off of Rikers Island and it killed the both of them everybody's not privy 
to, to, to the things that I'm privy to. So I kneeled for the people who, who don't have anyone speaking for them. Who, who I kneeled, Colin Kaepernick was right. We need to talk about this. Right. How do we tell these black men how to live and how to thrive and how to be, become successful parts of society if all we do is show them images of them being gunned down, no matter if you're right, no matter if you're wrong, no matter if you're good, no matter if you're bad, you're all susceptible to the same thing, death. The issue I have with the situation is that the narrative has completely shifted. We're no longer talking about the social injustice and the inequalities of people of color being shot at and killed by the police and the police getting away with it at alarming rates. We're not talking about that anymore. We're talking about Donald Trump. And I know that I can't be the only person in this country that is tired of talking about what Donald Trump has said. It's literally driven me to a headache the past few days. Like, I don't want to have conversations about it anymore. That's not what it was about to begin with. There's no disrespect to the flag. It, you know, when you protest something, the best way to do it is you do it in a way where that's going to get people's attention. Colin Kaepernick just wanted people to start talking. He just, he wasn't being disrespectful to, to the military, to vets, to, to, the, to, to anybody, to the flag. He wanted to spark a conversation. He didn't say he was going to kneel forever. He just wanted to spark the conversation. Now, this man doesn't have a job anymore, and we can kind of all say what we want to say about it, but he doesn't have a job because he's caused all this trouble. Okay, he's okay with that. When you when you step out and you, you lead the charge, there's a lot of consequences that come with that, and I'm pretty sure that Colin Ka Kaepernick weighed those consequences before he took a knee. But I feel like we've definitely gotten away from what this was about. You can't you can't talk about inclusiveness and 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 we're all doing this together and we're united because this is not a united front just yet. We are not united, unfortunately. We are not united. We are this is not a, a, a movement of unity. This is a movement of alarm. Hello, wake up. Do you see us? Do you hear us? We are not trying to go back to where we've come from. Over the last week, we've seen a, a rush of corporate, university, various business responses um, to this moment, rushing out to get statements, um, some better than others, Ben and Jerry's, Pornhub, Peloton, unexpectedly leading the way, setting the bar by putting resources and actionable items to their statements. Um, and then you have things like Team USA, the U.S. Olympic uh, and Paralympic Committee that put out a fairly watered down statement that talked about having support for these protests and for Black Lives, all while Gwen Berry was still on probation from when they reprimanded her for protesting at the Pan Am Games last fall. I caught up with Gwen to see how she was feeling right now. Um, mentally, emotionally, and physically, my body is preparing for, honestly, war. I feel like everyone's confused. I feel confused. I'm, you know, I'm not motivated. Um, I feel distressed because I feel like right now um, the country is crying out for change. So anytime something is dear to you, something is serious to you, um, something is embedded in you so deeply, uh, your feelings are um, undescribable sometimes because you're trying to survive. I feel like 
the main reason why I did what I did is because of the same feelings I'm feeling now. They were they were subtle. They were more subtle, but I did it for awareness. Um, that week, you know, there were um, I want to say like 58, 36 to like 58 deaths. You know, innocent people getting killed by armed shooters, and you know, no justice. You know, um, it was the anniversary of Mike Brown, and you know, Mike Brown, he was in my community. You know, he was probably friends of my cousins or, you know, I, I, I knew that I'm from the area where he was slain. Um, we walked the same streets. We went to the same parties. We we probably went to the same school functions and events. So I feel like that is the reason why I took a stand on that day at that time. And that was a peaceful protest. And now the world is trying to bring or talk about, oh, why aren't people protesting peacefully? Well, we tried that. We we already tried that. So now it results to this. I find myself just trying to answer the questions that I have running through my mind. Um, I just try to get up every day and um, do what I, you know, need to do because I am here in Houston, Texas to train for the Olympics, even though, you know, I really don't know how I feel about that anymore. I am taking breaks from social media sometimes. I feel like if it's too overwhelming, I'll probably, like, just delete the app from my phone for a couple of hours just to give my mind a rest. And, you know, I just honestly try to live just take it day by day. Um, you know, I make sure I'm in full contact all the time with my family members, making sure I know where they are. Everyone has locations on their phones, so we know that everyone is safe. And um, just mentally, I'm just trying to get some sleep. But, you know, that's pretty hard, too. Now, in addition to sleep, Gwen is also trying to get a public apology from TUSA. Please join with her and others demanding that they account for their hypocrisy. She wants it issued to her the same way they sent the probation letter in the mail on official paperwork, letterhead and everything. Next, I caught up with AJ Andrews, former guest of the pod, professional softball player, and all-around badass. I invite you to check out some of the work AJ's been doing using her platform to um, highlight the experiences of other women athletes, particularly Black women athletes in sport. Just this week, she hosted a conversation for the Players' Tribune with Natasha Cloud about athletic activism in this moment. Um, Please check it out. I caught up with AJ to see how she was feeling and talk about softball's response, or lack thereof. Yeah, thank you so much for like checking in on me and giving me an opportunity to kind of speak my truth and to say what's been on my mind because this has really been something that is extremely heavy on my heart and it's always been heavy on my heart, but it really just in these times I feel like you realize and you discover the people that are truly in your corner. And you discover the people that are truly your teammates. <laughs> and you think about it as an athlete, we have so many teammates throughout our lives from when we started playing sports to the professional level. Uh, we encounter so many different teammates, so many different coaches, so many different communities. And it's really very telling to have these circumstances where injustices arise and to see so many people that called me a teammate go silent. Um, I think for me, it's been something that's been really eye-opening because 
you've made it very clear, I am not your teammate. I'm only of importance to you when we step out on that field. Uh, Because when this isn't a trending topic anymore, when you don't feel compelled to say something because everyone else is doing it, at the end of the day, I'm still going to be Black. (laughs) At the end of the day, this is more than just a hashtag for me because that hashtag represents not just potentially it being myself, it potentially could be my father, my sister, my brother, anyone because of the fact that the hue of my skin, simply because the hue of my skin is darker than others. You would hope right? To see more unity. You would hope to see those same people on the field that are defending you and that are by your side for a championship, championing you, championing you along the way, be those same people that are championing you for your right to take a jog without being harassed or being killed, for your right to sleep in your own house without being killed, your right to go to the store without being killed. You can rally all this energy, rally up all these words to cheer for me on the field, but you can't cheer for me and be there for me when I'm fighting, not for a game, but truly for my life. Um, And for me, that's what's been really hurtful. Um, I think that silence is so deafening. And I think that it is truly speaking profoundly for all these people that I truly believe they think they're going unnoticed, that they're getting away unscathed because they're not, they don't want to make it political, which to me makes absolutely no sense because shouldn't everyone be against racism? Like, is this something new? In my mind, I'm just like, is this a new, I don't understand. Why is this something that is so complex to speak on? And I think if you are not a part of the solution, then you are very well a part of the problem. I think in sports, you know, we get, we have this saying in sports that just about every athlete has been told or has said, and it's, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. If we want to see change in this world, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's something that it's just, Ooh, it's, it's, it's hard. It's touchy. And I don't, my mind right now, I'm just, I'm infuriated, honestly, infuriated that this hasn't changed. Um, Conversations I've had with my father sound the exact same when he was younger. Conversations I have with my grandparents, it sounds the exact same from when they were younger. You know, one, one thing I wrote today on my sign, I went out to protests and I said the James Baldwin quote where he says, nothing can be charted. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. And it brought me to a, a softball analogy where at the end of the day, it just made me think, yeah, me making my efforts, I might strike out. But one thing I'm not going to do is I'm not going to strike out looking. I'm not going to do nothing. And it just brought me to this point where I'm thinking, how many of you stepped even stepped up to the plate? How many of you even showed up to the game? How many of you even just said, I don't like what's happening. This is not okay. Like, what have you done to be a part of the solution? Um, Because again, in sports, if we want to relate this to sports, always talk about getting 1% better every day. And if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. So if you're not trying to actively stop racism, I firmly believe you're for it. I think being complicit in any of this is being complacent. If you're complacent, you're complicit. And that's how I feel truly. And I don't know, it just infuriates me because regardless, I mean, I would be I would be right there next to my teammates if I felt like they were alone. I felt like they 
there these injustices were affecting them. And, you know, it's it's hard to feel like you don't have that support from teammates, from coaches, from universities, from organizations. And, you know, I wish there was a lot more unity when it comes to softball, the way that you see in the WNBA um, and some other sports that have truly grasped the fact that it's okay to denounce racism. It really is okay. And it really should be the norm. From softball, we move on to two other predominantly white sports in the United States, hockey and soccer respectfully, where Lindsay chats with two women at the beginning of their professional journeys, but already raising their voice. Last month, the Metropolitan Riveters selected Soroya Tinker in the first round of the NWHL draft. Coronavirus permitted, she will make her professional debut this fall. We talked about growing up in an overwhelmingly white sport of hockey, the racism that she's directly experienced, how she's found her voice, and mostly the importance of these protests. Throughout my career, I always knew that um, I was different from my teammates and never really found many of my closest friends on my team. But um, when I got to Yale, I think my freshman and sophomore year, I wasn't quite comfortable speaking up to the things that were happening in the dressing room or the comments that had been made, um, or like even letting my team get to know me to the point at which they would recognize that those things are wrong. Um, So I would just kind of avoid it. But throughout my upperclassmen years, junior and senior year, I think I just really came into my own and um, started realizing that it is my job to speak up and was able to do that with my teammates, um, especially with my new coach coming in my senior year, um, and was able to express to him the difficulties I had had and the diversity and inclusion inclusion training that I think should be um, used at Yale and in Yale Athletics. Um, so actually my senior year, I was able to play with Kirsten Good. She's a freshman. I'm going to be a sophomore this upcoming year at Yale. And she is also black. Um, So that was actually my first time ever playing with another black girl um, throughout my whole hockey career. And it was just really nice to have somebody that I could look to in the dressing room um, in certain situations. And I know that she really looks up to me and I felt like it was my job to be there for her um, as a sister or or whatever you may say. But um, I think that now was my time to speak up and I felt comfortable knowing that other black hockey players were doing so as well. In my story, I, I told um, how another parent in the stands called me a crossbreed to my mom, um, and my mom had no idea how to react um, to that. Um, and then I would also say that um, at Yale, it's in Yale in the hockey community, it's very rich white culture. Um, so I think that a lot of our our players aren't able to recognize the privilege that they've been awarded because of their skin color. Once Evander Kane started speaking up, um, I know I followed him in the NHL uh, my whole career and have always enjoyed watching him play. And I think that when he was able to have a strong voice and he he was able to vocalize his opinion and was unapologetic about it. Um, And then also Sarah Nurse on the women's side of the game. um, She's also another uh, Black Canadian hockey player. And I think that I've definitely followed her career um, as she's played in the NCAA as well. And I think that it's important for us both to use our voices on the women's side of the game to improve 
the culture of um, diversity and inclusion. So. On, in the dressing room and in terms of team culture, I think it's definitely important to call out um, other races, team, uh, teammates and friends and family members. Um, also, just knowing um, and understanding that white supremacy occurs both overtly and covertly. So um, I think it's important to research that and educate um, each other on all of those things. And then also just for people to look deeper into their own upbringing um, and the anti-blackness that has been preached to them throughout their um, adult life and childhood. And then um, just the fact that uh, people need to educate themselves on the history of Black America and look deeper into prior public displays of racism. And it's just so important that people educate themselves and are aware of this and then spread that. And that will result and hopefully result in anti-racism. So I, I know that it's not my job to educate others, but I come from a family where my mom's white and my dad's Black. So I know that my family members have questions and I know that my friends have questions. I know my teammates and coaches have questions. And I think that it's important that people feel comfortable reaching out to have those answered. Um, because as, as much as it is difficult to, to communicate these, these things as it's just emotionally taxing, um, I think that it's important to create a platform where people feel comfortable talking to each other about it. Um, and I, I just want to be able to do that because I know that I have so many white friends, family members, teammates that are that aren't aware of all this stuff and they do want answers. So I want to be there to answer that for them. I think that for me, it's so hard to see all of the negative stuff all over social media um, and the news, um, but also just realizing that it's our time to speak up and realizing that it's important to use your platform in the way that you can. It's so saddening. Um, I know that I've taken time and, and cried to myself and expressed my sadness to my family and my brothers. Um, but I think that my, the biggest takeaway is that it's time for people to realize that we have tried to silently protest and peacefully protest, and it hasn't worked. And it hasn't worked for years, and it's 2020. So I think that the, what, what's going on right now, it, it makes sense, and we're, we're no longer going to be put up with being ignored. Ziara King is a rookie in the National Women's Soccer League who was drafted ninth overall in the first round of this year's draft by the Utah Royals. A little over a week ago, she moved to Utah, one of the whitest states in the country, for this season. She's mostly had to process the murder of Floyd and the protest alone. We talked about how she's feeling, how she's adjusting to her new neighborhood, trying to initiate these tough conversations with the Royals organization and her teammates, what she would like from her teammates, and mainly the point she wants everyone to remember. It's, it's been pretty tough. Um, and, you know, it's like, it's something that's kind of just builds builds up on on to itself because you know it's like every so often 
we see it again. We see a new hashtag. We see Black Lives Matter trending again. And it's like, okay, like maybe this is going to be the time that, you know, like justice is served. And then again, we see justice is not served. And um, it's just it's just hard um, thinking about, you know, your family members, your friends. Are they safe? Am I safe? Um, it's just a lot. It's a lot, really. Um, and, and, you know, social media is so good in the regard that we can spread information and we can, like, let these injustices be brought to light. But at the same time, it really can be traumatizing um, because it's like, okay, we keep seeing the same thing over again. We keep seeing these videos of people being killed. It's, like, almost like desensitizing us at at the same time. And um, this last week especially has been um, kind of like information overload. Um, it's like it's like we keep seeing these protests. We keep seeing people getting tear gassed. We keep seeing, you know what I mean? It's 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 a lot. It's definitely a lot. It's been it's been hard. I've definitely been communicating a lot with my family. Um, just kind of talking about these things, my family, my friends, just kind of checking in on everybody, seeing how everybody's doing. Um, but, I mean, just trying to scope out, you know, the new area that I'm in here, just kind of see, like, it's like I, I like to go on walks, so I like to, you know, just kind of, like, think about, digest, observe, things like that. Um, looking at the trees, looking at the flowers blooming, just just trying to, you know, um, see what's, just enjoy the beauty of nature for right now, honestly, and just kind of look on positive sides, but also, like, just kind of, like, getting a vibe for the people I walk past, like, kind of seeing, like, okay, like, are they smiling, are they looking my direction, you know, like, things like that. Um, and trying to feel, if you feel safe there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But other than that, I mean, everybody here has been, um, as far as, like, the club goes, has been pretty – we haven't really had much interaction, so it's been kind of hard to even really have conversations. Um, but I kind of extended, like, the the arm to say, like, look, like, this is an issue, and if you guys want to talk about it, like, I'm here to talk about it. Like, I'm not uncomfortable having these conversations because they need to be had. Um, even though I really barely know these people, but I just want it to be known that I'm, you know what I mean, I'm I'm communicating about the things that I care about. So it's hard because this is an uncomfortable conversation. And um, at the end of the day, of course, you want everybody to um, to want to have the conversation and want to reach out and want to start the conversation. But at the end of the day, like, bottom line is it's not always going to be the case. And But, no, yeah, there have been definitely people that that have reached out um, and from the coaching staff as well. So that was also really, um, really comforting, I guess you could say, in some regard. I mean, first and foremost, have the conversations that are uncomfortable. Um reach out to, you know, for people who are, for non-black people or 
non-minorities or whatever term you want to use. Um, just, you know, hear hear people out. Listen when, you know what I mean, someone being oppressed is expressing and don't try and turn it around and make it about you. Don't try and, you know what I mean, just listen. And, and um, I think that's really important because I think it's so easy to deflect and to take away from, like, what the root of the issue is here. And at the end of the day, it's like you, you don't understand and you probably won't ever understand what it's like um, to be black in this country. And so um, when people who are, are expressing themselves, just, just listen, you know. Um, but on top of that, I, you know, I just hope that the NWSL and the players and everyone will do everything in their power to prevent racism from, you know, in in whatever form and whatever way that may be, prevent it from continuing to spread and continuing to, you know, infiltrate the society that we live in. Uh, at the end of the day, there are serious injustices in this country um, that relate to black people. Um, and it's deeper than everything that you're seeing on the news. It's deeper than, like, it starts from the foundation that this country was built on. Um, and I just hope that people understand that, you know, every people are doing everything in their power to deflect from the original issue at hand. Um, and I just hope that people, like, see past all of the, oh, well, they're criminals and they're thugs, they're looting, they're destroying. Look at the root here, okay? The root is people of color are being oppressed. Black people are being oppressed, okay? And just do everything in your power to just, I don't, it's hard because it's like in our power, is, it's, it sounds like it's easier, but at the, at the, the bottom line is it's, it's the people in power. It's the people with a lot of a lot of money and with the the higher up people that have the control and the government officials that are letting these things slide. So it's just, but all you can do is do what you can do, and that is have the conversations, donate to the causes, vote. Black people and blackness itself contains multitudes, and no one journey is the same. Next up, I chat with my former student, the marvelous Ellie Jean, as she embarks on her professional soccer career in Europe. She chats about learning to navigate and own her racial identity while finding her voice at the same time. So I am feeling very overwhelmed. I'm actually doing a lot better today. Yesterday was was actually really tough for me. Um, just going on the internet and just in my headspace, I was like, oh, like I, I feel like I need to get away a little bit from from viewing all of this. And I also had a lot of people reaching out to me um, to, which I'm very grateful for, to express, you know, their support for the black community and, and all of that. Um, but yeah, it's just, it gets really exhausting of mixed race. My um, father's from the Dominican um, and my mother is white. Um, She's just from um, Mass in the United States. I'm 
my father um, left me and my mother when I was in like first grade, second grade around that time. So fairly young. Um, my mom was raising me as a single mother. Um, and I mainly only had contact with all of my mom's side, my, my dad's side of the family, not so much because they're in the Dominican. I grew up with a white single mom and I went to school with all white kids. Um, I played sports with all white kids. Um, I really, at a young age, I knew I looked different, but I really didn't think much of it. I, I felt like, oh, like I'm just this white kid in this white town. Nothing's really, it's going well, la la la. And obviously as I start to get older, things start to change and we're obviously starting to learn more about, you know, the world is not always a safe place. It's not always, you know, butterflies and rainbows. Um, and yeah, I experienced a lot of, of microaggressions and, um, and kind of blatant racism from a lot of my and I quote friends in high school, just thinking that it's funny or, or, and me also not knowing how to react to those situations because I never had, um, I never had that type of education because even now I feel like sometimes my perspective isn't always valid because I feel like I haven't, and I, I do understand that it is, but I often have a internal conflict with wanting to speak out and talk about these things because I know that I, I'm in a very privileged situation. The color of my skin is lighter than, than others, and that protects me in a lot of sort of ways. I've been trying to have discussions with you know, my family, and my best friend and I actually went to a protest um, a few days ago, which was great. And I think that might have been her first protest and might have been her first like real um, like speaking out about race issues, which I was really proud of her for doing. But I just hope that people understand that it takes more than posting something on social media for things to actually occur. And I've even had to learn that in almost every environment that I've been in. No, I don't want to say in almost all of the environments I've been in, especially um, throughout my athletic career, I have been the minority. Like I'm trying to go through like figuring out my whole entire black identity. But whenever I step into a space, I'm already identified as black. I'm like, that's the first thing that people see. But yeah, my awareness is certainly growing, especially as I go into professional environments. Um, I'm also trying to, you know, speak out about these issues. I know that you um, have your colleague who who does um, the FAIR Network, which I really hope to, to get into one day. When I was at FCN, I, we got to choose like a female who we got to put on the back of our shirt. And I chose Crystal Dunn just because not only is she a phenomenal player on the U.S. Women's National Team, um, but she's also trying to bring up these issues for women's soccer in the United States um, and how it's predominantly white and, and how she hasn't seen a lot of players that look like herself. Now she's trying to push those barriers. So um, I'm, I'm kind of trying to go in her path. Yeah. So when I was in Denmark, actually, I did have a few conversations with, with people. Um, a lot of my teammates just asking and like, they're like, Oh, like, why is the United States doing this? And, and why that? And I'm like, ah, I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out and wrap my head around it as much as you guys are about just talking about, you know, the difference in environments from the United States to Denmark. And I'm really excited to be heading to Holland. I, I really can't wait, but I also do understand that I'm probably going to be, I will be a minority there as well. And I think for me, I, I just want to speak my truth and I, and I want to, and I want to say that, yeah, these issues aren't fixed 
Um, but it's not just in the United States that these issues aren't fixed. These are all over the world issues. And, and we've even seen that within the past couple months about all the, the racial inequality that's going on within the soccer, within the, um, football world. We've seen that all of the, the racial slurs that are being, that were being screamed at, you know, certain players on the pitch. And, and so obviously it's not just a United States issue. Obviously things you know, we're the home of the free, but then obviously not everybody is free. Well, a lot of our focus is centered on athletes at the collegiate and professional level. There's athletes across this country, in grade school, in middle school, in high school, who are also contending with these same issues. Certainly, Black children especially don't have the innocence of childhood for very long. Tamir Rice and Ayanna Stanley-Jones are painful, heartbreaking reminders that they are not spared from state-sanctioned violence and are a necessary and integral part of this conversation. From athlete activists to uh, general activists on the streets, the youth um, have been a vibrant part of this movement for Black lives and also are contending with some of the same themes that their older um, counterparts are as well. And with this in mind, I thought it was really important to hold space for that experience. So I chatted with one of the dopest teenagers I know, Black Girl Magic personified, Afro-Latinx elite Black ballerina, um, to talk about what she was feeling at this time. Hi, I'm Zariah Quiroz. I'm 13 years old, and I'm a dancer with Pacific Northwest Ballet in Seattle. I've been pretty weary and tired for the most part. I've just been really struggling with all the mass killings, and I've been really anxious and angry. And my surroundings aren't helping, especially social media. It's been just like jam-packed with all this information, and it's just really been putting an impact on my mental health. I just feel like within dance, it's just, it's been predominantly white and it's targeted towards a wealthier community and it's targeted toward a white wealthier community. So when it comes to ballet, you know, even simple things such as pink tights or pink ballet shoes, the meaning of those things are supposed to blend into your body and extend the line of your body, but they're all white. And I'm lucky that Freed of London has come out with black and brown leotards and tights and point shoes, but it's not always been this way. And it's just been really difficult. It's even hair, putting it in a bun. My hair isn't supposed to be in a tight bun all the time. It's not supposed to have hairspray in it. I have really been struggling with not only my dance company, but a lot of dance companies within the country. I really only notice them speak out when Black ballerinas within their company are raising awareness about these issues because they always claim to be diverse until it's time to show up and be there and advocate. And I think they really only show awareness or raise any concern when somebody speaks out and specifically says their company name. And this week, I was really lucky to talk to Amanda Morgan, one of the company members at my Pacific Northwest Ballet Ballet. And she has gone to a lot of protests this week, and she's just been speaking out. It's been really impressive, but I've just had a really hard time with a lot of like my white friends and dancers. Like Before, their parents... like wouldn't even let them watch The Hate You Give. And now I just feel like I see some of them advocating, but they're so silent. And I know they can speak and I know they have platforms to advocate, but I'm just not seeing. And even today, like posting a black picture on your page isn't advocating. It's It just feels like it's become a trend rather than a priority 
or movement or change. I hope to live in a world one day or maybe take steps or create a world where everyone has justice and there's, we just have community building. I just feel right now it's so broken and I just feel like we're not, we don't have enough spaces, especially for for POCs or black women to share their ideas and just be coherently all together and speak out about these issues. I'm just really tired of seeing the separation. I just feel like right now, obviously it's difficult because we're all in quarantine, but I'm just really tired. I wanna see my black friends. I wanna talk with them. I wanna communicate. I just want everyone to take a break and take time for yourself because this has been really overwhelming and really difficult to handle. Find something that you love to do and continue to do it and just persevere and thrive because I think everybody needs to hear that right now, especially the black community. Um, And yeah, I just want everyone to, strive and be happy because it's just been really hard for me because I'm really trying to stay off of social media when it's so jam-packed with all this information and it's really difficult but I think there's a lot of weight on my generation to just because of how messed up everything is and has been for a long time to create a new a new and just a new amazing world but it feels right now like it's never going to be that way that there's never going to be change and it's really difficult. I just feel like I'm keep on I keep on hitting the same brick wall because I can't change the world myself. It takes it takes a lot of people. But yeah, I've just been feeling really the weight of the world on my shoulders. Next, Shireen chats with Bilkis Abdul Qadir. You may remember her for her standout record-smashing high school basketball career or her D1 basketball career or as one of the women who was instrumental in tearing down FIBA's hijab ban. But in addition to being an educator, mentor, coach, and public speaker, Bilkis added a very new, very important addition to her resume. She's the new mom to a beautiful baby boy named Azian. And Shireen caught up with her to chat about being a Black Muslim, and now a black mother to a black son during this time. Um, honestly, uh, what's going on definitely has hit me harder than it has in the past. Because as we know, you know, things like this have been going on for for years. And um, I guess now that I'm in a new a, a new journey in life like as you mentioned a mother of a, of a of a black son of a black boy who um of course you just love so quickly which i didn't think that love could exist <laughs> but um i guess i'm just i'm a little i'm a little fearful and that's new for me to say because usually i'm i'm the strong type and kind of just don't let anything phase me and you know as a as an athlete you have to have this this fire in you and this resilience and no I haven't actually put my feelings into words yet about what's going on okay. and I'm still really trying to digest it all so mm-hmm. how I'm feeling right now in this moment like I said is, is a, I'm a little bit fearful and um, you know as a Muslim of course we are to tie our camel and trust the law you know and trust mm-hmm. God and understand mm-hmm. that he's the best of planners. And of course, you know, he is the one that allows things to happen and it, and it's in his will and in his, 
and his knowledge and wisdom why this is happening. I can see the beauty in some of this. You get what I'm saying? However, when it hits close to home and as a black woman, as a black wife, as a black mother, and as a black person in general, you, you're afraid because you're afraid for your own family. You're afraid mm-hmm. for, for every other black person in the world that mm-hmm. may go through being killed because of what you look like. You know, like, it's like, when do we get a break? Mm -hmm. And what people don't understand in the Muslim world, and we like to think that as Muslims, this doesn't happen, or we close our doors to it, or we turn a blind eye to it, because Allah said in the Quran that we're created from different nations and different tribes to get to know each other. And if I see that verse one more time, like, I love Allah's words, don't get me, don't get me wrong. But if I see that verse one more time, by, posted by a non-black Muslim, it almost is going to like irritate my soul. A lot of Muslims don't understand that black that Islam in America started from black people, mm-hmm. you know, and and we don't want to acknowledge that. Again, like I just really started to accept my blackness. I would say probably three to four years ago when I was going through the FIBA situation, you know, and growing up as a black girl, you almost didn't want to look black. So for me growing up, when somebody said, oh, I look like I was mixed or my hair didn't look like a normal black girl's hair or, you know, you almost took pride in it because that's what you learned. You you felt like you didn't want to look like a black person because it wasn't pretty, you know? Yeah. And it's, it was it's sad, like now that I think about it, and sometimes people would ask me like, "Oh, are you black?" And I would say, "Yeah, but I think I have in- I think I have Native American in me." You know, just to feel like a part of you was pretty. As I'm sitting here trying to digest it and I look at my newborn son and I see him, it's just like, "Man, you you're seeing these posts. When when will I no longer be a cute little boy? When am I going to turn into this intimidating black man that people Mm -hmm. see you know people see black men as Mm -hmm. so for him it's like at what age do we have to prepare him like my husband just told me the other day or he shared with me a little while ago too but he brought it up he said my dad his dad was a cop for over 30 years and Mm -hmm. he sat him down probably at the age of 10 and told him this is what you do when the cops pull you over and this was 28 years ago (laughs) <laughs> when my husband had to have this conversation mm-hmm. with his father. And I have to have the same conversation in, in 2030, God willing, with my son. Next, Shireen talks with recent UConn grad and a member of their storied women's basketball program, Batuli Kamara. At the moment, it is a lot to take in. Um, there are so many different layers to this fight, um, to our fight, to our collective fight, and to our collective healing. Um, and to be able to process all of that at once um, and really just try to connect with different people on different forums. At the end of the day, um, it has been really important for me to, to work to take care of myself. Um, of my spirit while also 
connecting, like I said, with others who are at the front lines, those who may be sharing information and who are at different forms of advocacy um, during this time. I would say for me, the biggest part that I would say for those, especially athletes, is do your research. Um, Mm -hmm. understand, Understand what's happening. Don't leave it to social media to tell you everything. Go out, do your research. Um, today there were votes. Figure out in what states that was happening. Not only share information, but actually know what what is the information you're sharing, um, mm-hmm. and be able to speak on it because you can then take that into your household. And I think that's where you create um, impactful change. But I'm so thankful that when I went to UConn, I had a great experience on the basketball court. I had a great experience in the classroom, but I had an amazing experience creating with players. Um, who were human, who were real, who were at the forefront of these fights. As you look at a lot of WNBA teams who um, were were kneeling and were part of those movements and who were loud about it um, and who were proud about what what they were fighting for as they should, it just meant so much to me um, to be be a part of that and to, to know that they were at the forefront doing that. And then to say, okay, well, now that there's a shift and more athletes are coming out, now you have teams giving out statements. Because when you look at sport, I don't think we've had conversations about sport without people of color, without Black people. And Mm -hmm. so you kind of get to that line of, if we don't, then we are completely disregarding um, a portion of our our staff, of our players, um, of who we play the game for and who's playing the game. Uh, being in a unique space as being in a unique space as an athlete, and so you kind of live in the intersection of fights against racism, against maybe Islamophobia, sexism, and um, you know, someone once said, you know, to be black and to be Muslim, and at the moment is a place of culture, of activism, of strong history, of education, of innovation, art, and creativity, a strong history of survival, and so for me, it is being able to say I can coexist. Um, and be everything that I am without you just defining me and minimizing me to an athlete, which is an immense title that I hold, but um, to say they're all important and I don't want to be described as one or the other. Um, mm-hmm. That erases my family, that erases my history, and that erases my future. Um, being able to share your story, um, there's nothing more powerful. So I would say those voices, um, those voices are, are speaking, but they're not always being heard. And I think mm-hmm. it's such an important time. And I would never forget um, a statement my coach made uh, back when I first got to UConn. And they said, you know, would you ever visit? What are your thoughts about race? He said, I have a girl on my team, you know, who's African. <laughs> she's Muslim and she's a woman. And if anyone goes against her, they're going against me. And that was one of the most powerful statements I think he's ever said to me that reaffirms me in a lot of ways. I would say the biggest learning lesson for me has been there is an immense amount of hurt within communities um, of all kinds. There is an immense um, amount of hurt. And so when I talk about, you know, this fight against systematic racism, there has to be an element of collective healing because that's what it is. There's a deep level of hurt of of my family, of who this affects and how it affects us. Um, There's this conversation at the dinner table. People are are losing sleep. Um, mm-hmm. People, it, it throws you off balance to where you can't even function the same way because deep down you're like it could have been me, um, could have been someone I love, um, and it was it was clear to me. 
So I would say the biggest thing I've learned is, yes, there is a fight, but there is also so much space um, needed for people to actually heal. In so many of the conversations you hear over and over again, people say they're tired. Black women saying they're exhausted. But Tuli just said, you need, we need to heal. And in many of these conversations, our own podcast included, a lot of time the perceived audience is somebody who's beginning their journey. And so a lot of the advice being given out is about how to get involved, how to be uncomfortable, how to learn to talk about race. And I wanted to hold space here for a different conversation, one centered on Black women who are looking to figure out how to survive, how to love themselves during this, how to, how to practice self-care. So for that, I called up my friend Alana Gardner, MFT. She's an individual and relationship specialist, a fitness professional, and a heart warrior. You know, I think like energetically and emotionally, I feel heavy for a plethora of reasons. I think you know, being a Black person, um, a, a Black uh, woman existing, you know, in a Black body in a predominantly, I think, Black city is challenging right now. It's really harrowing. So I'm feeling very heavy, but also feeling very conflicted about kind of what to do with my heaviness or I guess how present I'm, I'm willing to be while also caring for other people. Like, you know, Black people are in a monolith. So we're not all going to, I think, want to show up in the same ways when it comes to our own self-care and recognizing that even if we're all being hit with the same stressors, with the same stimuli, unfortunate stimuli, that you have to recognize and acknowledge how that manifests, you know, for you, right? Some people, I think, are, you know, highly mobilized, you know, so it's like, uh, like I'm anxious about these things. Or um, no, like I'm, I, I want to, I feel very much like I have to go out and do something and, and, and be able to, you know, kind of advocate for myself. And I'm willing to jump into any sort of form of self-care or emotional well-being or, you know, activism that I possibly can do. While there's a, on the other scheme of it, there's people who are just so numb to a lot of what it is that, you know, we're experiencing, what we're kind of going through. So I... The framework of how I like to kind of, you know, work in my in my practice and work with clients is from, you know, you use the word holistic. Um, so for me, I do kind of look at self-care in the same way. So when I say holistic or, you know, holistic practices or holistic healing, it really is coming from this idea of like the self-system and the various um, sort of parts and pieces of us as a human being that very much... Um, sort of make up who we are and that we could tap into and utilize, right? So whether it be the physical body, the emotional body, the mental body, um, the spiritual body or the relational body, uh, your self-care practices can reflect um, all of those different parts of the self-system, right? So when you talk about the physical body, it literally is, you know, your, your actual body, <laughs> you know, like how are you hydrating it? How much are you sleeping? How are you, you know, physically moving your body in ways that's going to help you um, either relieve stress or keep your body um, maintained in a healthy state? Uh, you know, are you nourishing yourself well, feeding yourself well? It's just that's just kind of like basic bare min bare minimum type of things. You know, I think 
when we think about physical self-care, it's, it tends to just kind of only focus on working out or trying to be as quote unquote healthy as we possibly can be. But really, you know, um, a good diet and workout routine doesn't outrun, you know, lack of sleep or it doesn't outrun, mm. um, you know, the fact that you're, you know, not drinking water and, and things like that. So really thinking about your physical self-care and tapping into how, how nourished am I keeping myself? Um, whether that be through my hydration, through my food intake, through, you know, my sleep, you know, my quality of sleep, all of those things, those are basic, you know, physical things that you can tap into that has nothing to do with like weight loss, a scale, um, you know, and, and I'm also very much a big fan of utilizing physical fitness in a way that's sort of joyful, right? So not trying to, um, shrink or, or use your, or manipulate your body in any sort of way. You're really just trying to tap into physically moving your body because it's good. It feels good to do so. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so then there's, you know, emotional self-care. So that's, you know, how emotions I think are sort of showing up for you and how, and, and again, emotions are very much tied to our physical body. You know, emotions are the language of the body and thoughts are the language of the brain. So, being able to have a relationship with, you know, not just sort of labeling and naming your emotions, but I think having a, an effective release for those emotions, you know, are you able to, you know, write about them? Are you able to speak about them? Um, you know, are you able to breathe through whatever it is that you're emotionally experiencing? Like breath is the first thing that you have when you, when you come into this world and it's the last thing that you take when you make your transition out. And so being able to, you know, utilize things like breath work to be able to ground yourself enough to even sit with your emotions is really important. You know, talking to, you know, outside um, people outside of yourself, you know, just because we're in, I think, a pandemic. And I know that, you know, you have listeners from all over. So um, everybody's... Uh, pandemic practices probably look very different right now. You know, some people might be in the yellow. Some people might be totally reopened. Some people just don't feel safe enough to leave their homes. There is literally a, a therapeutic resource for probably each and every one of those things. So I think, you know, something that myself and other wellness practitioners that I'm connected to have tried our best to do is offer virtual practices or, or sort of like a virtual laying of hands or holding a space. Um, and I'll be sure to send over some additional resources, um, you know, because I'm very much somebody who's big on taking insight and turning it into action. There's no point in having newfound insight if you can't make it actionable. So I'll definitely send over some additional resources that can hopefully um, hold and keep people during this time. We round out the interviews today with my friend, Dr. Mariam Aziz, a recent graduate of the University of Michigan's American Culture PhD program. I'm so pleased to say she'll be joining us here at Penn State as the Richard Center postdoc in African-American history. Dr. Aziz's work is on Black power and martial arts, but she's also a scholar practitioner, a second degree black belt. Here, Dr. Aziz offers us words about finding self-care, meanings of martial arts, and the power of the practice. Black life for me 
has been about my bow staff for the past couple of weeks. My bow staff is wooden and is an extension of my hand. And as a martial artist, I whip it around my head and make circular movements around my body to move through the pain that I've been feeling, not only around the murder of George Floyd, but around the murders of Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and also locally in Michigan, Aura Rosser. I haven't practiced martial arts outside in quite some time, and every time I do, I'm cognizant of the fact that my black Muslim body comes off as a certain way to a white bystander, that me twirling my bow staff above my head is an art to me, is embodied healing, is a form of wellness to exert and release all of the pain that I'm moving through watching so much black life turn to black death. I've used this as a form of wellness for so many years, dating back to the time when after the 2016 elections, I taught a slew of anti-hate crime self-defense seminars that were as much about learning how to defend black and brown and queer bodies and trans bodies as much as they were about moving through the moment and finding a source of comfort by reconnecting with our bodies as they are and not as people believe they should be. What was so powerful for me about that work was that we were not teaching people empowerment, but creating space for them to empower themselves through martial arts and unarmed self-defense. My wellness increases every time that I remember that we had classrooms with old South Asian Muslim aunties, with young trans and non-binary folk, rooms that people said could not be created, but rooms that we manifested where we all move together and learn to have a different relationship to not only our bodies, but the bodies of others. Creating this type of space has always been my politic, and making this type of space safe has always been my politic. But as I've been standing outside, moving through the air, transcending with my staff, I'm reminded again that there's no safe space for bodies that look like mine. What so often gets left out of narratives around Black Lives Matter is that we always have to say her name and say their names. That black folk, regardless of gender, are at risk of dangerous state violence and intercommunity violence. And as a scholar practitioner, I know that this is nothing new. I know that the FBI and police departments surveil the Nation of Islam for practicing martial arts and learning how to defend themselves against police dogs and police batons, that they were learning to defend themselves against staffs being used against them. I know this is nothing new because under black women's leadership in Oakland, the Black Panther Party taught young kids martial arts and yoga so that they could experience movement arts, so that they could feel through the anger, the sadness, and the joy of being young and black in the 1970s in the United States. I'm reminded of their legacies in these moments as I try and move my body freely outside. That part of black liberation has always been about black liberation and moving the body through space and time as you will and see fit. To be able to walk to a corner store and be able to leave unharmed. To be able to get home or wake up in your bed safe and sound 
to be able to have an interaction with another civilian and not have a law enforcement officer called on you. That liberation is about opening up space and allowing people to live and breathe and move as they want to. And I think as I twirl my bow staff through the air, will I no longer be able to breathe like Ora Rosser? Will I ever have a police officer's knee on my neck like George Floyd? And I know, as someone who studies martial arts, that these types of tactics are harmful, that these types of tactics are deadly, and that people who are taught these tactics are not unassuming and unaware. They know when they use them how threatening they are to the human body and the human life. And I understand the deep history between law enforcement in the United States and the U.S. military using martial arts and combat sports as a way to train people to exert dominance. And I know my own truth that martial ways and martial arts and combat sports are a pathway that lead me to freedom from those who seek to use similar tactics against my body. That was The Peace Poets, a collective of artists that celebrate and examine and advocate for life through music and poetry. They're based in the Bronx. They wrote that song in 2014 after the death of Eric Garner. Please support them. Check them out at thepeacepoets.com. Thank you so much for sitting in this space, holding this space with us here at Burn It All Down. A few weeks ago, I played a clip of Sweet Honey and the Rock singing the words of Ella Baker, we who believe in freedom must not rest until it comes. And that feels like a world away. We must not rest the world. It feels like a slugfest right now. It's hard. It's hard to trudge through. But this is a marathon, not a sprint. Self-care, rejuvenate, connect. We have miles to go before we sleep. I am so thankful for the space that we have here at Burn It All Down to go in depth in these conversations. And I would like to take a special time to thank all of the Black women who joined us today to share their truth and their stories and their anger and their tears and their rage and their exhaustion. Kelsey Bone, Gwen Berry, A.J. Andrews, Soraya Tinker, Cesara King, Ellie Jean, Zariah Kiros, Bilkis Abdul-Kadir, uh, Batuli Kamara, Alana Gardner, Dr. Mariam Aziz. Thank you, Flamethrowers, for bearing witness, for holding this space with us. Every day, but especially now, burn on, not out. I still hear my brother crying, I can't breathe. Now I'm in the struggle, saying I can't leave. We call it out the violence of these racist police. And we ain't gonna stop till our people are free. We ain't gonna stop till our people are free.